0: and you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com
1: slash slash film. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, October 9th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Sorreta. and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Squatran Bowie.
2: Hey, everyone.
1: Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, let's jump into it. Um I haven't really been doing much this past week, so you're probably not gonna hear much from me on this podcast, but I did this past uh a couple days ago. I went to the Hallmark store because I'm not sure if you guys know this but like when, when you become adult and you celebrate Christmas you start buying ornaments and then you realize all the ornaments are sold out by the time Christmas season hits and then you realize that Hallmark actually has like these two premiere events one in July and then one in October where they release their new ornaments and if you don't kind of jump into there and at those at that time then you miss out on some of the cooler ornaments some of the more limited edition ornaments so uh kitra and i went to a hallmark store in montrose california which is kind of out there it took us like a 45 minute drive uh the reason why we went all the way out there is uh you know all the malls are still closed here in california or most of them in our area and a lot of the hallmark stores take place or are set in the malls and uh they do do curbside pickup. They, they still still are open, but we wanted to go in and look at the ornaments, and we did a video for her Adventures. Uh, but we went to Montrose to uh, one of the one of the only Hallmark stores that's actually in like a uh, shopping plaza, so we could check out the ornaments. And um, there's some really cool ornaments, uh, Brad. I know you have you also have a love for collecting christmas ornaments have you seen any of the new ornaments that have come out this week
3: yeah I, uh, well not that i haven't seen the ones that came out this week in person but like I, I usually keep track of when they announce them and uh sometimes put pre-orders in for the ones that i i know that i want and that i feel like might be hard to get so like back in gosh i don't even know uh probably july or something like that i ordered the or maybe even before i ordered the baby yoda uh hallmark keepsake ornament so um, i can yeah, have that for the tree this yeah year. i, I... I did that as well, and
1: thankfully we did, Brad, because it was sold out in store. Yeah,
3: I'm I'm not surprised. What what are the other limited edition ones that you were hoping to get? Because usually I don't have any problem getting a hold of the ones I want, whether it's online or or in the store, because oftentimes I usually like to wait until um, after Christmas when they go on sale um you know
1: i'm not sure what i was hoping to get this time there was like actually last time i had a big list of things i wanted but this time i I just wanted to see them and one thing i didn't know and i'm not sure if you've seen this but there's a yoda ornament that came out this time like not a baby yoda but uh, like an actual yoda from empire strikes back and it's like about an inch tall and it's animatronic it's a full animatronic where Like you press the button and his mouth moves and his eyes blink. It's like, you know, a Furby, but like, you know, on the level of like, you know, uh, what, like a half foot, like six inch tall ornament. I don't know. It it was just really super impressive. I I ended up buying that.
3: I haven't seen that Um, one. Yeah.
1: Well, I think they like, I I saw pictures of it online, but I was just like, oh, it's just another order. a Yoda ornament. I have have enough Yoda ornaments, but like, uh, I don't know. Check it out. I'll, I'll send you the video uh, that we did. Uh, but, like, it's, it's really impressive because it's like, I don't know, it, it's really crazy that technology has gotten that far that we're like seeing like animatronic ornaments now. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, th- that was my big find at the Christmas ornaments. So, um, so yeah, Christmas ornament shopping in October. Uh, that's what happens now, I guess. Um, Brad, what have you been up to?
3: Um, so this isn't something that I did recently, but back in September, I participated um, in a virtual press day for Pixar, um, and I want to talk about it just because this was much different than what normally happens with, with Pixar press days like this, because usually uh, we get to go out to Pixar um, out in San Francisco, and get to tour the um, the animation studio and like see their the big wall of concept art and do present see the presentations live in person uh, and talk to the filmmakers there see the footage and their their big theater that's that's in their offices uh, but this year all of that was done online they had a whole uh, virtual press day where they sent us like a, a super secure link um, through this um, like software that's um Apparently, like specifically made for like sending out secure links for like screening, uh, you know, various forms of media, and then they had virtual presentations uh, with like Pete Doctor and Kent Powers and Dana Murray and uh, the various departments. Um, and it's it was I don't know it, it was kind of weird just because you know doing all of this from from home it, it, it makes it feel uh, a little more impersonal, um, and then like you know there's the the aspect of like, you feel like, uh, it, it feels more efficient, but at the same time it's, it's not quite as, as fun because, you know, there's, there's excitement that comes from being, you know, actually at Pixar where, you know, where they're making these movies. Um, so yeah, it was a little bit odd and I'll talk about the footage, um, that I saw uh, a little bit later in our, what we've been watching section, but yeah, I just wanted to, to mention that, that the, doing these kinds of things from home are just, <laughs> just odd.
1: <laughs> yeah. When you were doing this press day, it was a theatrical film. By the time you had to release your coverage, it was uh, downgraded to a, to a d- direct home video.
3: Yeah, so now the whole Pixar experience will be from home.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris, what have you been up to? Uh,
4: I voted, um, and it felt good because it just felt good to do something because everything is a, a constant nightmare. Um, uh, I, I'm lucky enough to live in a, a very blue state where voting early was very easy. I literally just got my ballot in the mail. Uh, we went to a drop box. That's like five minutes away from my house. I, there was no line. I just put it in there. Um, I know, uh, some States aren't as lucky there, are, you know, certain, certain governors who will go nameless have, have worked very hard to limit voting for, uh, very obvious reasons. And I, I sympathize and I know no one wants to wait in long lines, but if you're in a state where you have to wait in a long line, I, I urge you to please just do it because. This is a very important election, and I would like you know I would like the world to just get a you know a smidgen better so uh please remember to vote uh unless you you know you're voting for Donald Trump and then maybe just don't do that. thank you <laughs> okay then
1: h j what have you been up to? <laughs>
2: I guested on the Storm podcast, which is the uh, Lost Rewatch podcast hosted by uh, Joanna Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Neil Miller. And I talked a little bit about this last week where I talked about doing a binge rewatch of Lost Seasons 1, 2, 3, and... um, I got to talk about the season three finale of Lost, which was Through the Looking Glass, actually just the second part of the season three finale, because they had uh, another critic to talk about the first half. And um, it's a lot of fun. You can listen to the episode um, online, and I'll have link, have it linked in the show notes too. Um, but I had a lot of fun talking about my favorite boys, Charlie and Desmond, and um, an episode that is just full of Big, big Lost moments, and uh, I won't spoil them here in case you haven't seen Lost somehow in the past ten years. But um, it was a really fun episode to uh, to talk about uh, with Joanna and uh, to just to gush about my boys again. I, I love. I actually had originally requested to to talk about. Lashes Before Your Eyes, which is the Desmond-centric episode in season three, because it's kind of a proto-constant, and I really wanted to talk about that, but someone else had gotten it, so it's okay. But in this um, episode, I got to talk about both Charlie and Desmond, who are my two boys. So,
3: (laughs) Man,
0: H.C., you lucked out. That's a great episode to talk about. It
2: really is. It really is. So uh, I hope you guys can listen to it.
1: Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week?
5: I've started reading Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon by James Hibbard. This is the new oral history about the making of Game of Thrones. And Hibbard is very much the guy you want writing this book. He's a writer for Him Weekly or EW, whatever they're calling themselves these days. And for all eight seasons of that show, he was the guy. He was on the set. He was getting all the exclusive interviews. He was dropping all the big news. So he was very, very close to all of it. And this new book is just a compilation of, you know, interviews with everybody involved in the show, Uh, actors, the showrunners, George R. R. Martin himself, and I'm not that far into it, and I'm enjoying it a lot. However, part of me is wondering if this is the kind of book that will be better serviced by waiting a decade, (laughs) because I just finished reading Space Odyssey by Michael Benson, which I talked about on last week's show, and since that's a book about a 50-year-old movie, uh, and with interviews that were conducted independently by people who were decades removed there was a level of honesty and frankness about that entire production that really shone through and became really captivating and time allowed. Everything to be taken in a perspective that you can't get from a show that ended last year. So I'm just wondering if there's a better version of Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, published in 20 years, not as oral history, but written as an actual book, you know, with all the interviews turned into the actual prose. But yeah, right now, if if you need that Game of Thrones fix, you want to know you want to you know, see who's spilling tea right now and who's not uh it, it's it's all there and so far there aren't any major revelations a lot of uh, a lot of um extensions of things you may have heard before but there's already been i've already seen my fair share of you know reddit threads about people trying to figure out ooh, is this george r r martin you know expressing his disapproval in a, in a subtle way in this interview and haven't gone to those parts yet but we'll see but right now i know that in 10 years whoever's still alive um would still be would be able to have a much better discussion about that in general so it's good right now Uh, i'm curious how time will treat it especially as the years go on and the conversation around this show and its legacy will deepen or undeepen. we'll see
1: Hmm. chris what have you been reading
4: uh i read my best friend's exorcism by grady hendrix and this was uh just a great little book it's 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 so good. Grady Hendrix is a very good writer. Um, uh, it's a it's set in the eighties and it's about these two um high school friends and you know they're they're very close and then all of a sudden one of them begins to change, and that's because she's possessed by demonic forces. Um, it it it's it's creepy, but it's also really um surprisingly sweet. And this is something I found with um the Grady Hendrix books uh, book I read before this, which was uh. I forget the title is the, the Southern book club guide to, to slaying vampires. I think that it was called, but that both these books, they're really good at, at, at the horror stuff, but I, I think he's, he's even better at nailing down like really sweet emotional moments, which work uh, very well and go a long way to making us care about um, the characters and, and that that makes it, you know, a better horror story. Uh, the worst horror is the stuff where we just don't give a shit about the characters. Like if I don't care about the characters, I'm not going to really care what's happening to them. And Grady Hendrix really understands how to make you really root for his characters, which makes their, their, uh, emotional plight, all the more, um, compelling and, and emotional. So, uh, this, this book isn't new. It's, it's kind of old, but, um, if, uh, if you haven't read it yet, I, I really recommend it. I, rec- I recommend pretty much everything he's written because everything I've read of his is just, just dynamite. So very good. My best friend's exorcism.
5: Just out of curiosity, Chris, I have a copy of this. I've not read it yet, but I bought it based on the cover art alone, which is styled like an old VHS cover. I'm curious if that's the one, the copy you have or not.
4: Uh, I have I have a Kindle version, but yeah, that, that is the um the the cover that came with the Kindle version is that one too, yeah.
5: Yeah, it's it's a ra- it's rad cover art. Like I saw that and picked up Blind Body, even though I've read some Grady Hendrix uh, since then and I've enjoyed him a lot. Like it's the best book cover art I've ever seen.
4: Yeah, it's a good representation of the book too, because the the book is very much um, tied into that like nostalgic '80s horror VHS vibe. So it's it's not just like it's not false advertising, is what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh Ben, what have you been? Reading or rereading? What have you <laughs> yes. been doing?
0: I uh, I reread The Halloween Tree, which is Ray Bradbury's book. I think it came out in the 1970s, 1972. Uh, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, I grew up watching the animated, uh, I guess, movie, animated TV special um, that... Uh, is based on this book. And I just read the book for the first time a couple of years ago. Um, I know this is one that Chris loves and, and likes to reread uh, as well. And it was just, you know, as soon as the calendar flipped over into October, I was like, all right, I need I need that, uh, you know, Halloween spirit. And there isn't a single property that I can think of that puts me more in that mood than the Halloween tree. And I, while I love the movie, I think I I'm starting to prefer the book because I haven't seen the movie in a long time. I have a lot of, you know, fond childhood, nostalgic ties to it, but um, the book is, is deeper than the movie. It it covers more ground and, and uh, in uh, more in-depth ways. And um, man, it's just so evocative and so great. Like if you're looking to get into that, you know, that it might be like the best fall book that has ever been written. Like it just, the way that Bradbury Puts sentences together about the wind and, you know, the small town life and, um, you know, the, the pumpkins and the trees and everything. It's just, it's so like perfectly evocative and, and, and just instantly transports you to this time and place and, and makes you feel all the things you want to feel when you, you are, uh, in a fall mood. So that's the Halloween tree. I would recommend that anyone ever read it. It's, it's, you know, great <laughs> for all ages. Anybody listening to this, like, buy it buy copies for your family spread it around it's like it's one of my favorite uh um, you know uh, seasonal books for sure
4: you know ben what you need to check out now is are the the audio versions there are two different audio versions there's a uh, audio play version where it's like an audio drama which is okay but it has like a lot of like actor like kid actors doing like kid actor voices we're like why am i dressed like a mummy which is Gee, it's like, yeah so like that one's not that great but then there's another one. Which is read by Bronson Pinchot, cousin Balky, and that's like a straight reading of the book, what? and it's really good. He he does a really good job with all the voices. Um, I recommend that one a lot. That that's the, the, the I think it's like on an Audible and stuff like that. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've never really
0: been much of an audiobook person, but this is such a a breezy sort of short story, and with a recommendation like that, and and Bronson, Bronson Pinchot's involvement, yes. I'm not sure how I can pass that up. Yeah,
4: you can't you can't turn down the Bronson Pinchot action. <laughs>
1: Wait, i can't i can't move on here chris is he like an audiobook like voice artist or is like i think so he- because i
4: i can't remember what it is but i know i have um another audiobook that he read and oh. uh you know what you have to get you have to get out of your mind the the cousin balky voice he's not reading it in the cousin balky voice as as funny as that would be his own voice <laughs> is just like a normal voice okay well now he- i don't want to listen to it <laughs> <laughs>
0: I just know him mostly as Serge from the Beverly Hills cop movies. So I'm just imagining him reading
4: it in that voice too. (laughs) No, he has like a, like a, kind of like a deep kind of voice and he, he's, he's very good with, you know, doing voices and they, you know, other voices beyond, you know, the cousin Balky slash Serge voice, which are really kind of the same voice when you think about it. So (laughs) yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching uh, like I said earlier, I haven't really had time much for TV or anything this week. We've been stuffing envelopes for our Patreon, with to send out like almost 900 uh, envelopes of stickers and stuff like that, which has been I don't know interesting <laughs> because we're we're stamping envelopes, we're putting labels on envelopes, we're putting the actual stamps on the envelopes, we have to like stuff the envelopes. Uh, but, anyways, um, I did want to talk about one thing I've been watching lately. And that is Casey Neistat's vlogs. Uh, now, it's not something I discovered recently. I, I I do think I was probably late to the Casey Neistat bandwagon. He, for those of you who don't know, is a YouTuber. He was on the YouTube platform uh, since I think two thousand one or two thousand something like that. And
0: uh, I think YouTube was invented in two thousand five. So uh, I'm not sure if he was on there. Really? Since yeah, I, I'm pretty sure.
1: I'm pretty sure I saw some stuff from uh... <laughs> now I gotta look this up, Ben. Yeah. I was <laughs> 2005.
2: Yeah, it was
3: launched in February of two thousand five.
1: Wow. Okay, then I don't know how long he's been a YouTuber.
2: So since the beginning probably.
1: <laughs> yeah. The weird thing is I just pulled up his Wikipedia and it says he's been active on YouTube since two thousand one. <laughs> What a, re- so I a true didn't even, innovator, like, and I didn't even go to this page in the research for this, so I don't understand. Huh. Okay, I don't know when he started, uh, I, okay, 2015. Okay, that's much later, I guess. I'm reading he's start, here, no. he's been
3: on the internet since 1974. So, <laughs> uh, okay, I got it
1: he he started in 2010 that's a lot different than 2001 i think what confused me is he's done he has like he's one of those people that's recorded video all his life and he has like footage of like when he was living in new york city uh during 911 and he's put together vlogs from back in those times i guess before youtube even existed um, so maybe maybe that's why i'm getting confused uh but uh yeah so he's been doing he's been vlogging since 2010 he he um he started doing daily vlogs in uh, when uh 2015. Now that I have the information in front of me, I can give you ac- accurate information here. Um, and uh, he's this guy that lives in New York City. And honestly, for years, I like had no interest in watching Casey Neistat videos because. He kind of looks like I don't know. He kind of looks like something I wouldn't want to watch. Like he kind of uh, always has like the smile on his face, and he has these glasses, these sunglasses that are like uh, spray painted, and I-, I don't know. It just like seemed like he was being kind of a hipster. Uh, I don't know. Uh, w- whatever. Uh, I discovered him a couple of years ago when uh, we we were getting big into watching vloggers, a lot of theme park vloggers, but we were reaching we were expanding our our area of what we were watching. And I think he has like, you know, something like fifteen million subscribers or something like that. Um like three billion views. Um and uh he the interesting thing about him is he was living in New York City and he was doing these daily vlogs and he's he's actually kind of like the person that brought daily vlogging into popularity. And, uh, he, he stopped, he moved to LA about a year ago and he stopped doing these daily vlogs all of a sudden. And he, he had done the occasional vlogs over the last year, but recently he started doing more daily vlogging again, uh, out of nowhere. And he's doing like this really short form. I think his vlogs used to be like 10, 15 minutes long. Now they're like five minute long vlogs and, it's such interesting compelling content it's always like it's it's first of all the the thumbnail in the title is always some kind of clickbait thing like it it's like uh showing a picture of his wife and it the the title is this is why she wants to leave and then the video ends up having nothing to do with like them (laughs) fighting or anything like that and it does like fulfill that that title but in a way that you didn't expect Uh, but lately he's been doing a lot of these vlogs and they are I would call them art like there's one recent one that he it's called a problem in the shower and he bought this new soap dish for his new uh, Venice house that he's living in and he was having this problem with the soap dish filling up with water and it's like this five minute video that goes I don't know it it, it just is such a feat of filmmaking like he i know when you think vlog you think of like home movie or you think of like you know like a and i do with ordinary adventures like he makes what we do on ordinary adventures look like uh home video in the 50s <laughs> like he he is a, a real artist with uh vlogging uh he did this uh one recently with uh he's had had this ant infestation in his up uh, his apartment and. It's uh I I don't know it, it it evolved from the story of this ant infestation to a story about Hitler and all those I don't know it, it was just crazy I don't know I, I I I mean I know that like I'm not saying anything I mean people a million people are watching each of his videos so like I'm, I'm not sure who I'm recommending this to that hasn't already seen this but uh I would say if you aren't checking out Casey Neistat's recent daily vlogs to check them out like they're really quick they're really fast they're um really enjoyable and like i don't know how he does it because like he has like these drone shots he'll have shots like in angles that you don't know how they're possible he he, he not only finds a way to shoot everything in the most interesting compelling way possible but like i don't know watching his content is like I'm like, how can someone be that creative in in this medium? Like, he's too good for the medium of YouTube. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I would say if you haven't checked out Casey Neistat's uh, recent daily vlogs, I'd say check them out on YouTube.com. So, um,
2: Peter, uh, for someone who actually isn't really familiar with Casey Neistat, um, what does his channel generally cover other than oh, daily uh... insights into his life?
1: I mean, <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you there. It's all over the place. I mean, yes, it is just daily insights into his life. But like, you know, he's a surfer. I don't know anything. I give you right now is going to be not interesting. It's not going to sell you on this at all. But um, I don't know. I don't. I don't even know how to. Dis- he's not a dis- a person that you could easily describe in a sentence or a paragraph Mm
2: -hmm. if that makes sense yeah
1: um but i would say check out some of his stuff because uh i don't know it's just strangely so compelling and so interesting it's just from a pure uh telling stories in this medium and how he does it i don't know i i really i'm trying i'm trying to grasp it like I I think it's just the daily going on of this very artistic, um, creative individual and, you know, pre COVID, it was a lot of him traveling around the world, you know, because he's such a huge YouTuber, like he would get flown around the world to give talks and stuff like that. And it would be his misadventures while doing that. And also, uh, you know, surfing. And he likes to, I don't want to say do pranks, but sometimes like, uh, Like, one of his biggest videos of all time was when he lived in uh, New York City. He did a thing where they went snowboarding in Manhattan. So, like, they had a truck uh, carry a – what do you call that? Like, one of those wires that you hold on to and, like, they snowboarded through Manhattan through the – Yeah. Kind of. Not
2: really, but –
1: Yeah, whatever the thing is that you hold on – like, when you're, like – going water skiing or whatever like one of those things so you went snowboarding through Manhattan wow. I don't know um it's I don't know one of his recent videos I don't know, I'm not sure if anything I'm saying right now is 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 convincing anybody to, to watch this but his last video which was from yesterday which actually is very unusual for him uh was uh I guess there's this um in the world of surfing there's this this term called kook and there's a, uh, there's a Instagram account called the daily kook, which features uh, people in the surf world that are like are idiots, right? Like they don't know what they're doing. And him and his friend, who is, I guess, a huge surfer, like a huge, like the biggest name surfer. I don't recognize his name, but they decided one day that they wanted to go out and try to fake a video and then send it to this. Daily Kook Instagram account to try to get you know this big name surfer beyond that account without them knowing it to trick them into it that's not typically what he does, but that was just like a fun misadventure that he had and it's you know that that video's three minutes and fifty eight seconds long, so it's like no time at all anyways <laughs> this went on a lot longer than I thought I was gonna, but uh yeah, watch Casey Neistat. so. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching?
3: Uh, well, as I mentioned before, um, I participated in Pixar's uh Soul Press Day, and uh, for the presentation of footage they showed us, I got to see roughly 40 minutes of footage, um, pretty much the first act and just a little bit past it. And uh, I have a full, you know, rundown of, of my reaction to it on Slash Film, uh, as well as um, a big piece about the making of the movie and some of the interesting details about uh, different facets of production, like the challenges they. They had and um, and whatnot, but um, uh, I was really impressed by by this footage. This, um, I mean, I, I'm continually impressed by Pixar's animation, um, especially when it comes to their environments, because it's getting to the point where they're creating settings and and places that look unbelievably realistic to the point where if you were to remove the stylized characters from them, I doubt you would be able to tell which you know, shot of, say, a middle school band room is real and which is created with computer animation. Uh, the level of detail is, is incredible. And and in, in here there's some just awe-inspiring shots when it comes to how they depict um, the music. Jazz music plays a, a big part of the, the story. And watching <clears throat> Jamie Foxx's character, Joe Gardner, play the piano, they don't shy away from showing the character doing it. They get close-ups of his fingers, you know, tickling those ivories. And there are shots of, like, the other instruments, like uh, the drums and the saxophone. Uh, There's a a shot of a saxophone in this movie that, like, just blew my mind just because the reflections off of the brass um, and just, like, the way the light hits it and how realistic it all looked. Um, And then you have, on the other other side of the spectrum, you go into the world of the great before, which is where this place where souls uh, exist and figure out what their personality traits are. And it's this crazy imaginative ethereal plane um that you know looks like this like dreamscape you know it has it has a heavenly vibe but also like in an abstract art kind of fashion these cool colors um very like soft fuzzy kind of Im- imagery and uh, just just seeing like the, the how they brought this world to life is it, crazy especially after hearing them talk about how they like the meticulous like planning they did to try and figure out the best way to represent like what a soul looks like in this form and like they researched all different sorts of materials and how to depict it so it had this like kind of uh like a weightless quality to it and had a uh, the material from which like the soul is quote-unquote made out of is um has like this transparent quality and like they uh they use this material called aerogel which is like this very uh lightweight porous material that like arrows um the aerospace industry uses um to basically inspire what the soul would, would look like and then but then using that brought challenges of, of how, like making sure that there were defined lines in like the, the fingers and the hands and the facial expressions and then there's these characters that are called uh counselors that kind of are in control of the area where souls are starting to get their personality traits and they're essentially these like glowing um like electric white uh, lines that exist in a three-dimensional space and they shape shift and take forms of like almost Picasso like faces and bodies, but then they can also shape into like the form of a bus. So all the little like new souls can hop in and they can drive them, drive them around in it. Um, and it's just this really surreal world that they've created for. It. And it's um, it's on another level, even from inside out, like, cause it's inside out, you know, had some kind of like, had a sort of like, I guess, industrial structure to it. And this j- just feels so, other otherworldly, um. But yeah, I was just so impressed by this movie. It's, I it feels like it's a little more mature than what Pixar usually does. And I, the one, the one concern I had was that I, I'm, I wonder if there's maybe too much, too much exposition and too much existential, you know, of a of a narrative there for kids to stay interested in it. But the, but at the same time, once um, Joe Gardner gets into the the, the soul world, the great before there is a lot of comedy that comes from Tina Fey's character. Um, goofy kind of stuff that kids will like along with clever things that adults will pick up on. So it's um, I'm very excited to see where it goes. there's a there's a plot point that I won't um, discuss here that they didn't reveal or confirm to us, but it's very much hinted at towards the end of the footage that they showed us. But it hasn't been in any marketing yet uh, or anything like that. Um, but it's uh, it'll add an interesting wrinkle to the story. Um, and I think takes it in a, in a little bit more of a conventional direction, probably for the second half of the movie. Uh, but yeah, I, w- I was impressed. and I'm, I'm very excited to see the, the full movie when it comes out on Disney Plus at Christmas. And when it comes out, it's going to have a short film attached to it. It will. Um, at least I, I, I assume it will. I wonder if they'll have it attached to it, or if they'll just release it alongside Soul. Because um, they've, they've never released a Pixar movie like this before, so that'll be interesting to see. But yeah, there's a new short film uh, called Burrow. Um, and that's uh, directed by Madeline uh, Sharafian. It's part of Pixar's Spark Shorts program, which is their more experimental animation arm where they d- do different kinds of animation other than their traditional uh, computer animation style. Uh, and this, the story is about um, this uh, young rabbit who's trying to build uh, the burrow of her dreams. But as she's digging around underground, she keeps like accidentally digging into... Uh, neighbors' houses, like other creatures that you know burrow underground, like like moles and whatnot. Um, and she's very stubborn about wanting to do it herself. She doesn't want any help. And uh, the animation style is is cool because it's it's two D and it's um it's kind of like it has this uh, almost like the style of the classic um, Winnie the Pooh uh, illustrations, but with a um but like a kind of like a, a Saturday morning cartoon like touch to it as well. Actually, it's um. I, maybe the closest description uh, is probably Ernest and uh Celestine which is the um, that that Franco-Belgian animated uh, movie that was released uh, oh gosh back in the early 2010s I think. Um but it's uh it's really cute, really really funny. Uh the the animation um, is is fantastic. I like seeing Pixar dabble in these different kinds of um, animation styles just to kind of broaden their horizons a little bit rather than you know doing what we're used to seeing them doing so uh yeah that's if, if that's not attached to soul make sure you go out of your way to watch it when it uh presumably arrives on disney plus at some point
1: okay what else have you been watching
3: um i've also been watching um i got around to watching fletch which is something that we discussed not too long ago i think when they discussed that there was going to be a new fletch adaptation uh and i had never seen this it's kind of been a blind spot for me and I finally went out of my way to watch it. Um, it stars uh, Chevy Chase. It's an adaptation um, of Gregory McDonald's recurring character, who's this uh, reporter who um, does a lot of undercover stories and exposing things. And uh, this movie is a pure 1985 detective comedy that is weird. I, I feel like it hasn't aged too well. I, I I wonder if it's one of those movies that has like you know some nostalgia to it for people who. Saw it in theaters, grew up on it and whatnot, but it's it has the same vibe as like a Beverly Hills Cop or a 48 Hours where there's a very serious um, crime story at the center of it. But there's also the, this character who is sarcastic and uh, funny and, you know, brings a little bit of levity to the situation. Um, I haven't read any of the Fletch novels, so I can't say like how um, loyal this movie is to the books, but... To me, this movie felt like a movie where they got Chevy Chase and kind of let Chevy Chase do what he wanted and tried to fit him into this crime story because it has a lot of his like signature like slapstick moments that he used to do on SNL and in the vacation movies where like he's struggling to get like a straw in his mouth or like accidentally stumbles into to weird things um, but there's there's still this very serious story at the center of it because there's um, there's a um, like a drug ring that he's trying to uh, expose in in California. And then at the same time, he's investigating uh, this millionaire played by Tim Matheson, who has hired him to kill him, Uh, not kill himself, Fletch, but kill the millionaire. Um, And so he's investigating these these things. And it's like I said, it's meant to be serious, but it just, the, the, the juxtaposition of these, of the comedy and the drama is just too much for it to really mesh together. It's not pulled off nearly as well. As it is uh, in like Beverly Hills Cop or um, Midnight Run m- movies like that, so I just I walked away just thinking that this movie was just kind of odd and disappointing. And Gina Davis is in it in like a super thankless, unnecessary role. Who's like Fletch's um, like good like friend who works in the uh, at the newspaper, and she like has these you know conversations with him that make it seem like they're they have a history and they're they're great friends, but she doesn't really have a significant. Role to play? She's just kind of there. So I don't know. Um, I has, does anybody here like Fletch? Has anybody here seen Fletch? Man, I saw it a long
0: time ago, and my memories of it made me think that this would be like hundred percent a Brad movie. Like you know the way that you love SNL and like the Chevy Chase of it all, and just like his uh my, my memory of this movie, which I probably saw you know fifteen or twenty years ago at this point, is just like a bunch of fun little scenes that are strung together with him, like impersonating different people and just like constantly, you know, dropping one liners. And I remember having a really good time with it when I was young. Um, But hearing you talk about it now, I'm like, huh, I wonder if this really is just one of those movies. that just does not really hold up very well in 2020.
3: Yeah. There's, there's some, there are some fun moments when Chevy Chase is like, is donning these disguises. He has, he has various uh, wigs and outfits that he puts on. Um, But it, yeah, it just, I don't know. it, It all just felt kind of disjointed and, didn't come together for me i I really wanted to like this movie and i expected to just because i had heard people talk about it for so long but yeah i just sat sat there thinking being like huh well this is this was weird and disappointing (laughs) (laughs) um and then also um i i'm my girlfriend and i have decided to keep up with the great british baking show instead of waiting until the new season is over and binging it just because it gives us something to look forward to each week um and we just we decided we didn't really like waiting so we uh started watching uh season 8 i believe it is um and uh matt lucas is uh the new host on a great british baking show and he's been he's been fun um i don't think that i um like him as much uh as uh sandy that's her name right is it sandy i think that's correct um, but, and so, so she left of her own, uh, volition. She wanted to do other things, but it's, it's still, you know, the same show that she, that you love. I was, I will say that I was kind of worried that they were making some changes because the first, like, um, final challenge to do in the first episode felt like they were trying to do nailed it, albeit in a less obnoxious fashion um and it it was still very funny but i was just like i hope that this isn't like a new thing where they're trying to like make it so that they're intentionally trying to have them make things that won't work instead of the normal awesome you know uh baked goods that they're they're constantly churning out but uh yeah i think that's that's it
1: okay then uh let's move on let's talk to uh jacob what have you been watching
5: it's been a really rough uh couple weeks slash months and this is a week where it really caught with me where i haven't really had a chance to watch much of anything uh, except for the things that are i'm sort of obligated to for my side projects and that means i've been watching more doctor who and star trek for the podcast i host with ht trekking through time and space now available on the podcast host of your choice and as rough as things have been for me and as dire as i felt recently these shows have been so comforting. It's, there's something nice and wonderful about watching a show that you feel like belongs to you, even though it doesn't, you, you didn't make it and millions of other people enjoy it as well. But for years, Star Trek was that thing for me. It was, it was, you know, the one franchise or series that uh, felt comfortable. Like it was, it's comforting. Like Star Trek generation is my desert island show. It's a show that I would take with me if I can only watch one other show for the rest of my life. And Dr. Who, even though I'm still early days with it, it is such a similar vibe that um it's proven equally comforting and i just recently uh I recorded an episode that you know you won't hear for a little while because we're pretty far ahead of where the schedule is uh but we could have talked for hours about one episode in particular and i realized that this is these are, these are shows that like are special they're special and, they, and they've won their fandom for a reason and uh i'm not saying you have to you have to go listen to our podcast or discuss these shows, but I am saying that I I wish I felt more strongly and more positively about other forms of media as I do about Star Trek and Doctor Who right now uh, in October of 2020.
2: Oh, Jacob, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) Uh, But yes, I'm happy that you're that we're doing this podcast. And um, I'm really excited for the episode we're soon going to record because there's an episode of Doctor Who we're talking about is one that very specifically, I think, appeals to Jacob's interest. And I'm excited to talk about that one. So it's just uh, it's been a really fun experience doing this with you, Jacob. And I'm happy it's giving you that light in your weekend months
5: there's a podcast that I used to listen to and I dropped it because of time issues, but it was called Rachel watches Star Trek. And Eddie was the host a Star Trek fan and his wife has never seen it. And they watch it together and do podcasts about it. And I enjoyed it. It was very, very funny, but one of the running is that the wife never really gets into Star Trek, she's always dismissive of it. And it ultimately became like a, a show about as you, it was funny as it was. I was really worried that our show would have that vibe HD, but The fact that you have embraced star trek the way you did uh uh really really makes me happy and i'm I'm hoping that my embracing of who makes you happy in a similar way but all i know about is i guess we can give a minor spoiler for a future episode but how we obsessed over ricardo montalban for a very long time (laughs) episode i'm glad we could do that together
2: yeah Yes, and um, yeah, I, I do love I love Star Trek, especially Spock, who I have ador- just adored from the beginning and Letter Nimoy's performance, too, so I'm having a lot of fun doing this ep- this podcast with you, so uh, if- this might just be a plug for uh, you guys to listen to our <laughs> podcast, but it's been really fun recording it, too.
5: It uh, wasn't my intention. I will say that Doctor Who is streaming on uh, HBO Max, and Star Trek is streaming on Amazon, Netflix, and CBS All Access. And like I said, two really optimistic, hopeful science fiction shows to have literally hundreds of hours for you to dive into. Maybe what you need right now in October 2020.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, HT, what have you been watching?
2: All right, this is my last New York Film Festival update, um, which you guys have been hanging on to for every word, I'm sure. Um, I watched Red, White, and Blue, which is the last of the three Steve McQueen small acts movies that is debuting at New York Film Festival. This is the film starring John Boyega as a young black man in the 70s who decides to become a policeman. And this is by far the most challenging and um, difficult of McQueen's films for small acts. It's one that provides no easy answers and leaves you with a sense of um, discomfort, essentially, because it um, really does address current-day issues that haven't been solved. And John Boyega gives a really, really phenomenal performance. Honestly, one of the best performances of his career thus far. And it feels like McQueen truly understands how to utilize him and his strengths as an actor. Um, I absolutely was astonished by how much of a physical uh, performance Boyega gives in here. He, he has, like, a different sort of physique in this film. He's very hulking, and um, even though his character himself is a very upstanding, sort of buttoned-up type of person, he kind of feel his his frustration and his anger just kind of boil over in um, his physical performance. And he's just so, so fantastic in it. And um, it feels very much like um, he is, it's a very Sisyphean task that he takes on. And it feels very much like he em- embodies that, that Sisyphus type of character, that Greek mythic character who is rolling that boulder up the hill. And we never do see the boulder reach the top. And it and indeed is, feels like an impossible task that he takes on. Um, and it's just a, a really, really phenomenal performance. And that's red, white, and blue. Which will be premiering with the Small Axe Films on Amazon on I have this from last time <laughs> I remember uh, on November twentieth to twenty twenty on Amazon okay. Prime. Okay, all right. The next movie I watched was <laughs> Tragic Jungle, which is a, um, a Mexican film directed by Yulene uh, Olizola, and it is. I, I really, really dug this film. It basically takes a Mayan legend and um, transports it to 1920s um, rainforest along the Rio Hondo, and uh, uh, which is the border between Mexico and British Honduras. And it follows a young woman who tries to escape with her sister from a white British landowner who she doesn't want to marry and ends up uh, taken hostage by a group of... Uh, gum tree workers who are harvesting the gum in the trees and uh, she ends up um, sort of captivating and entrancing them uh, to the point that they all are driven sort of insane by her presence and one by one they are kind of befelled by this uh, mystical sort of uh, impact that she has on them and um, it's a dark fairy tale uh, given a contemporary uh, at least 1920s, um, setting, uh, which is just my catnip. I love that kind of mythic storytelling, um, given that more contemporary twist and it's dark, it's tactile, it's sumptuous and weird and, um, very, very just, uh, uh, affecting. So this is Tragic Jungle. Um, I highly recommend it and, um, don't know where, where it's going to be, but that's, of showing at the New York Film Festival uh, and I absolutely adored it. So um, that is one of the films. And then the last movie that I watched from New York Film Festival uh, is called French Exit. It's a closing night film. It's directed by Azazel Jacobs, um, written by Patrick DeWitt, based on the novel by Patrick DeWitt. And this is the movie that stars Michelle Pfeiffer as a rich uh, New York widower who um, after her husband's estate runs out uh, escapes to New- to Paris with her son played by Lucas Hedges and essentially like lives out the last of um spends the last of her husband's inheritance while uh, whittling her time away in Paris and um I have mixed feelings about this film because I think Michelle Pfeiffer is just wonderful as usual and is just so magnetic and sharp, and um, uh, somewhat uh, has does it has this great portrayal of like a, the self destructive um, tsunami of a woman. Um, but this film, I think, adheres very strongly to the book that Patrick Dewitt wrote. I haven't read the book, but it feels very novel, like novelly, if that makes sense. It, it's very much a film that is. Uh, um excited by its own intellect <laughs> the characters speaking this very stilted very um heightened type of dialogue um that you would expect to read in a like a novel and it has this absurd comedy to it that i did enjoy but all of it didn't quite cohere in a way that i think was totally successful i also think lucas hedges might have been miscast um as this movie was going on, I, I made a joke, I guess, uh, to my friend that um, Lucas Hedges, who is sporting much longer hair than usually is, uh, grew out his hair to rival Timothy Chalamet's luscious locks. And as the movie was going on, I, I start to, I started to feel that this is a role that was made more for Timothy Chalamet's type of performance, that kind of lackadaisical wealthy ennui, and Lucas Hedges. Is a good actor, and it's really funny to see how he, his, and Timothy Chalamet's career paths have been parallel, um, often been very similar. But um, he kind of has more of a, I don't know, salt of the earth griminess to him that doesn't totally let him embody this character like he could. He could, but um, yeah, it was a. Uh, it, it's it's fun. It's it's a funny, um, interesting movie and uh Michelle Pfeiffer is excellent in it and it's it does a lot of interesting things <laughs> but uh <laughs> I can't I can't say that I totally loved it. So that's French French Exit. Okay. Uh,
1: and you also rewatched a modern day classic,
2: I guess? Yeah, I call it a modern day classic, sure. I rewatched the The Sixth Sense um M. Night Shyamalan's I guess you could call it his breakout film, yeah, it's for sure, it's breakout film. And um, I hadn't seen this movie since high school. and um, this was back in high school when I was uh, making my way through all of the big movie classics and attempt to give myself a, an accelerated version of a film of a film like um, education. And Sixth Sense was a movie that I had, of course, heard of back then. And I knew the twist because everyone did back in the 90s uh, slash early 2000s. And um, I I remember like when I first saw The Sixth Sense still being so bowled over by how that twist, even knowing it just works into the overall context of the film and how it just um, it doesn't lessen your enjoyment of the movie. And it still maintains a level of suspense and emotional um investment despite it being apparent uh, allegedly sort of centered around that one big twist um but watching it again uh, i really appreciate even more how much of an emotional horror movie this is and i even would hesitate to call this a horror movie because it it does have horror elements and it is i feel like it plays out more like a, a thriller than anything but and it is isn't as scary as um many many horror movies are but it's it is a classic and um i also was surprised that tony collette was in this movie i i think when i watched this back uh, when i first saw it i did not know who tony collette was and now i do and she's so young and she's so good in this movie and um i guess starting off her long career of playing horror movie moms um (laughs) but she's great and just uh 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 it's uh yeah forgetting the the kid actor's name um
1: uh, Haley. Haley Joel Osment. Yeah.
2: Haley Joel Osment is just really, really fantastic in this. Like, he gives one of the best child actor performances I think I've ever seen, and um, he's he has also the cutest voice ever. I think watching it now, as I'm older, I have so much more affection for him, and I really just want to just protect him even more. He, <laughs> he's, he's so cute. Anyways, Six cents, good movie is my hot take.
1: Okay. Uh Ben, what have you been watching?
0: I watched a documentary on Netflix called Echo in the Canyon, which came out in 2018. Uh Jacob Dylan, who is the frontman for a band called The Wallflowers, he's Bob Dylan's son, uh is like sort of the host of this documentary and basically the whole thing is about uh this period in uh between 1965 and 1967 when a bunch of uh essentially artists and musicians and people came from all over the world to the Laurel Canyon neighborhood of Los Angeles and basically the, like birthed the folk rock music scene there. And it's all about, you know, the birds and the beach boys and, you know, Buffalo Springfield and, uh, you know, all these bands that like, if you're listening to this, your parents probably listened to, you know, growing up and, and maybe some of you still listen to. Um, but man, I, I just got like a newfound appreciation for, uh, a lot of that music. Um, I grew up hearing all of that stuff on, you know, just like classic, uh, classic rock or, or, you know, easy listening kind of, uh, radio stations. I never really, uh, took a, a deep dive into that music scene myself because I was just more into different, you know, different genres of music and stuff, but there, there's so much there that um, listening to it now. Uh, and maybe it's just a thing where like as a kid, it's not really a, the type of music style that really resonates with a kid. But um, as I've gotten older, I think I, I have more of an appreciation for uh, that era of music. And, and this is such a hyper specific look at, you know, this one little period that had such a huge creative explosion in it. And, um, there's interviews in there with Brian Wilson from the beach boys and, you know, uh, David Crosby from the birds and Eric Clapton and Ringo Starr from the Beatles. And just like, you know, tons of people, uh, Tom Petty, who, uh, died right after this movie came out, I think, or a, a couple months after or something. Um, he is interviewed in this as well so it's it's a lot of like uh, inside stories from people who are actually there um explaining you know the history of songs like california dream and like how they came about and you know the, the stories behind some of the most famous uh, songs and bands from that era so it's called echo in the canyon it's on netflix right now i would definitely recommend it um it's a, a nice little breezy movie i think the only downside for me was that um jacob dylan and people like beck and fiona apple and regina specter and Nora jones like more modern artists uh they put on this concert where they're doing covers of a lot of these classic songs and so some of the movie is footage from a concert that they did in la uh you know with with this where it's just them playing the songs and like it's fine they're all very very good musicians but i kind of just wished that like That part would (laughs) would have been excised, and like we could actually just hear more from the people who were there, or like see more, um, you know, archival footage and stuff like that. uh, Because I think that that's where like the real interesting stuff is. The rest, the the you know, the music performances uh, from these modern performers, it's good stuff, but it's just it's not really why I clicked play on Echo in the Canyon. But um, anyway, it's good. It's it's worth your time for sure if you're interested in that era of uh, of creativity in American music culture
1: yeah until until you said that last part i was like this sounds like a really like a talking head documentary (laughs) they they (laughs) don't have footage to fill it in and i'm guessing that's probably why they have those performances
0: yeah there's a lot of archival stuff which is really cool to see but um yeah a lot of it it, it's sort of like the the it's almost like an oral history on film of like that specific moment in time, which is, is, it's pretty cool. So Echo in the Canyon is what it's called. It's on Netflix. Uh, I also did a, I guess over the course of two nights, so it wasn't really a double feature, but sort of a back to back double feature of, um, the invisible man, the 2020 version and shutter Island, which uh, I had not seen since it came out, I think in 2010, that was actually the first movie that I ever got a, um, like press access to that I ever saw at a press screening. <laughs> um, so uh before that i'd been reviewing movies and i just had to like go pay for tickets and stuff like that but that was the first one um after i moved to la where i actually saw the movie at the arc light and it was like a big deal for me at the time so um yes both
1: of these movies wait, wait, are. Hey, before you get into this ben yes I, I, I just a question came on my mind now that you live in florida yes, i mean obviously you have not like figured this out yet because there's no press screenings <laughs> in florida right. But are there press screenings near you and are you going to be able to go to press screenings in Florida? I have no earthly idea
0: Peter. I've thought about this but there is, the the infrastructure is not in place for me to be able to even like figure out an answer to that question at this stage. So uh once movies come back and once movie theaters come back um you know hopefully I'll be able to get some clarity about that but like I'm wondering if even the movie theaters where there might be screenings here in in you know my town might even be out of business by the time, you know, movie screenings Uh, come back. So I'm really not sure about that.
1: What's the biggest, like, major city near you? Uh, Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Um, Yeah, so there's probably screenings there i'm assuming yeah
0: theoretically but it's also like a bit of a haul for me so it might not even be worth driving you know an hour plus to go see a screening so i, I don't know We'll we'll have to see <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious about that once things uh return to normal if they ever return to normal who knows <laughs> uh but um the invisible man I, I don't really have much to say about this i know you guys have talked about it before um when it came out earlier this year and i just missed it but it's on uh hbo max right now so i finally got a chance to catch up with it and elizabeth moss is great and like that's basically my review of the movie movie like I just I really loved watching her um you know engage with this uh with this concept and I think Lee Winnell who directed Upgrade recently which I, I recently saw and really really liked um is just a super talented uh, director for especially for these like sort of low budget you know sub 15 20 million dollar movies um he's just really a creative filmmaker and I, I like a lot of what he does uh here so The Invisible Man is is great and Shutter Island is just um it's Martin Scorsese having a lot of fun and doing a lot of, uh, you know, homages to different like old school noir storytelling and and just um, it, there, there's so much style on display in Shutter Island that I'd forgotten about. And the, the plot is like so, you know, uh, labyrinthine and, you know, he, he goes through all these different uh, he, his character. I mean, it's so fascinating to watch, especially knowing the ending now since I'd seen the movie before um, just rewatching it. I mean, talking about the sixth sense, it's sort of the same thing of watching that movie again, after knowing the ending and you just have that, it gave me that similar feeling of just like watching the craft on display. And like, um, like HT said, it doesn't really uh, take anything away from the experience. It, it sort of gives you um an appreciation on a different level, instead of just being bowled over by a, you know, a surprise you're, you're more like engaged with the the craft and the filmmaking. So um, both movies also are, are very much about like, um, you know, are you, is the protagonist losing their mind? Like, is this, you know, it's about gaslighting and like, <laughs> you know, how, how um, people are perceived and how they perceive their own realities and, and all of that. So it was sort of a fascinating, uh, unintentional, thematic uh resonance there with the with that sort of double feature so um shutter island i think was on i'm trying to remember where i watched it i'll I'll look that up so i can (laughs) let people know where they they can check that out ben i recently
5: recently watched on amazon so i think it's there
0: okay yes yeah good call
1: by the way like shutter island got a lot of like i don't know i i feel like it's it's not a movie that's looked uh positively uh on Uh, is that because it's from Martin Scorsese? I feel like it's a good movie. Like it's maybe not like, you know, on the level of other Scorsese movies, but like, you know, I I like it better than Cape Fear. Yeah. I think it's Uh, aged
5: really well. Uh, I think that at the time people were really mixed because I think that there's this expectation that the new Scorsese film needs to be a masterpiece. When Scorsese is clearly operating in making a gothic thriller and having a good time doing it. And even though the film does have some hidden emotional power, I think that anytime Scorsese is not making a quote-unquote important film, people turn their noses up on it, and then 10 years later, like, oh, that's actually good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also really interesting to think about uh, DiCaprio at that time, because this
0: movie came out in the same year as Inception, and thinking about, like, the the uh, thematic links that uh, Shutter Island and Inception share is fascinating. Just, like, the idea of, um, you know, his character having experienced this this huge loss and, like, the whole thing of like playing with reality and stuff too, like what was Leonardo DiCaprio going through at that time where both of these scripts, you know, jumped out to him and, and resonated with him in a really uh, significant way and made him do, you know, theoretically, or, or uh, I guess in practice, like some, some pretty similar explore, pretty similar material, um, you know, from two like modern master filmmakers. So um, maybe that would be a good double, double feature mm-hmm. as well. Shutter Island and Inception, but. Uh, okay, and then the last, the last thing that I watched was on uh, stars actually, so I'm not sure if this is streaming anywhere else, but uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, I revisited, and god, I mean, considering all that we've gone through, uh, you know, in the past <laughs> year, it, to think that this movie came out last year is insane to me, <laughs> like, this is, I, is this the most recent Marvel movie that's come out in theaters? I did not look that up before, uh... I, uh, I, it might be, Um but God, what, I mean, the watching this movie just made me feel like, man, we really lived in an entirely different world, you know, a year ago when this thing came out. But um, I had a lot of fun rewatching this. I, my wife had uh, missed it in theaters the first time around. So uh, I had been hoping that it would come to streaming sometime soon. So she could, uh, so I could show it to her because I I also wanted to rewatch it. And there's just so much like, this might be one of the funniest uh, MCU movies, uh, at least of the past few years. Um, And uh, I just really love Tom Holland's take on the character. And Zendaya is great in this one. She has a little bit more to do. Um, I still would love to see her step it up a little bit more. Like the writers give her a little bit more to do even, but um, you know, for a a movie that uh, tries to increase its scope so much from Spider-Man Homecoming, um, I think this is about as good as you can do from uh, with, with a, uh, a, you know, a, a in the constraints of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and like all the requirements that um, that it must take to to build a movie like that. Uh, and Jake Hall is just so much fun as as Mysterio yeah. in this thing, too. So um, that is Spider-Man Far From Home. And, you know, I'll just leave it at that. We've talked about that. Movie yeah. enough,
1: And uh, you are right. This is the last movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that was released. It was released in July 2019. A year which had three Marvel movies. Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, and Spider-Man Far From Home. In 2020, we'll have none. So, uh, but guess what? Uh, you know, right now, as it is, we have, what, four Marvel movies coming out? So, <laughs> if that holds.
5: At the uh, risk of sound like a huge dumb fanboy, I would love, love to be awash in Marvel movies again. Because, one, I love those movies. And, two anything to feel normal, anything. If, if, if people were complaining about too many Marvel movies, the world would be normal again. And goodness gracious, that's what I want.
4: You know, I had a, I had a thought the other day, um, you know, most movies that are coming out now, most new movies, they were all made before the pandemic, but you know, Spider-Man three is apparently going to start shooting this month. And it makes me wonder, like are movies, released after the pandemic going to address the pandemic like are people going to be walking around with masks on in the mcu now or are all these movies just going to exist in like a completely different world like and not just the mcu i just mean movies in general like any movie that comes out now after the pandemic i mean because like when you watch movies now when you watch new movies like stuff that just came out recently no one is like walking around wearing a mask and. It's so weird, like when you watch a movie that was released this year and or like last year, and you see people like in a crowd, and you think like, well, we can't do that anymore. So it's like, are movies that are, gonna, are that are any movie in the future going to like exist in our world? Is what I'm wondering, or is it just everything going to be like completely separated in this like fantasy realm where there is no coronavirus and everyone could just go about their lives? And that's a good question. I'm <laughs> yeah. very curious about like how how. Like how, because like movies, in some respects, they're escapism. We watch movies to escape the real world, but at the same time, the movies we're watching, even Marvel movies, where things are fantastical, they're they're sort of grounded in reality. We're supposed to believe that it's happening in real life, quote unquote. And I just, I am very curious how.
1: what when is the last time that something like this has happened in? That it's in a world event. Well, of course, there's like 9 like, 11 yeah. or something like that, but like you don't have to address 9 11. 9 11, you know, you could choose to not show what a like great depression,
3: maybe. I mean, any, I any of the world, Wars of like, or like, or you know, Vietnam or anything like that, like those are the kinds of things. But like, again, yeah, it's not something that you have but to address that, every yeah. day, like something like a pandemic. I, I feel like I don't think Marvel will address it in that way if only because. While they like to like put forth the idea that the the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, exists as if it were in the real world, technically it's not like meant to be this Earth. You know, it it could be any number of you know parallel Earths, whether it's you know Earth six one six or what, whatever you want it to be. So they probably don't need to address it. It would just exist in a real world in which there probably wasn't a pandemic, um, and I, I think that's especially true if, if only because. Like, even though this is what our new normal is right now, once there's a vaccine and once things do get better, you know, in twenty years, uh, no, but um we we won't be wearing masks, you know as as often. so I, I feel like they probably won't insert into that just simply because it, it's just it's still just a moment in time.
2: I think I touched on this on a previous episode, but um the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu pandemic um, which was uh, at the time like the most deadly influenza pandemic uh, in history and um, there was a suspected like 50 million deaths over the like, two years and which about like a third of the world's population uh, was rarely ever referenced in literature that followed um, and was something that is generally not like not spoken about in literature in film or anything that came out i guess the film came out it wasn't really a, a big film industry at the time but the literature yeah. specifically doesn't really cover the flu pandemic despite it being such a major um marker of like human history um because right after that we would have world war one the great depression all those things so maybe those things overtook it but still this was a major pandemic that killed a third of the world's population and it was barely mentioned and i think that like t- the, this pan, the, that pandemic only came um, to be talked about more in in light of this current coronavirus yeah. pandemic. So it's kind of interesting. Maybe it's just like people don't want to live with it anymore. So they just keep push it out of popular culture in general. And maybe the, the coronavirus pandemic will be completely forgotten in a couple of years, maybe not a couple of years, maybe in 10 years, <laughs> once we like push it out of our, our pop culture. But I still think
1: that's different because that's still like people that have died, a mass of people that have died that we can, you know, it happens outside of that frame of the movie and it's not like it didn't happen, but like, it's just not shown now. Like it's just visual. Like what Chris is talking about is visual Mm -hmm. that like, you know, we don't want to be in crowds. Number one, number two, everybody's wearing masks. And number three, also another factor, I don't think, Uh, that we've brought up so far that these film productions are requiring the social distancing and masks and stuff like that. So like, if you want to have a big crowd scene, it either has to be CG. There has to be forced perspective. You have to CG out uh, the, the masks or, uh, or something. Um, So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how uh, Jacob, you were going to say something. This is
5: sort of a slight tangent, but I, I feel like it's related, which is, when Peter Jackson remade King Kong in 2005, he beefed up the opening act a great deal. He spent a lot more time with uh, the lead female character, but Naomi only watching that film, uh, before she leaves on the boat. And that's because Peter Jackson has, uh, was talking about the research into the writing and how in that film, it's like 10 minutes in the movie, she's on a boat heading for an island. And it's because the shorthand at the time for an audience member watching a film in 1933 was, oh, it's the Great Depression, a paying job on a boat, I'll take it immediately, no hesitation. Whereas for an audience in 2005, you have to sell why this woman would be willing to jump on a boat with a bunch of strangers and journey off of the nowhere. Uh, so that's why there's so much additional footage and time spent establishing the Great Depression and establishing the why of this particular time period. So I'm just very curious to see if 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 like that kind of why, that kind of motivation is something that will affect storylines going forward in any capacity.
4: I also and- wonder like how to do it in a... Not subtle way, but I'm remembering. Remembering after nine eleven, there were all these really hokey edition. Like I remember the, the United
1: ninety three.
4: No, I'm talking about like not even related to like movie. Like the first Spider Man, the Sam Raimi Spider Man. I remember oh, yeah. there's a scene where like he's fighting the Green Goblin, and then there are all these New Yorkers like throwing <laughs> trash, and they're like, "If you we're New Yorkers, <laughs> you mess with one of us, you, you mess, mess with all of us." us. Yeah, and it's like it's all this like tacked on like. <laughs> Even like Mr. Deeds, the Adam Mm -hmm. Sandler movie. I remember there's a scene where (laughs) there's a building on fire and he goes to help them. And there's like this terrible ADR where Adam Sandler is like, it's a privilege to help the New York Fire Department, the best in the world. And it's like, I'm just wondering if we're going to have like stuff like that, but about the pandemic, just pandemic like shoehorned into production. I mean, Are
5: you I saying don't... that Hubby Halloween 2 will feature a Dr. Fauci cameo appearance?
4: I hope so. We can only hope.
5: I, I would not be surprised if that actually
0: happened, Jacob. <laughs> uh, and real quick, to bring it back to the MCU, um, Avengers Endgame jumped the timeline forward to 2023. And the same, so I think Spider Man Far From Home also takes place in 2023. So maybe they just skipped right over the pandemic and everything's A OK.
5: Look at that, what can we? convenient, weeks. right? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Snap me away for next
1: year or so. <laughs> yeah. And Black Widow a prequel. So you avoid it there too. So, yeah. Okay, I think that does it. Uh, did you have anything else to say about Spider-Man: Far From Home, Ben? What no, it's a really fun movie. Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating? Um, this week?
3: Just a couple things. Uh, so I don't like Tootsie Rolls, regular Tootsie Rolls. I think they're trash. Um, they look like no, screw no, you, man. No, this no, is absolute, no, no,
5: absolute it's, nonsense. They look
3: like cat <laughs> they turds. They taste like too. artificial, nasty fudge. They're
5: disgusting.
3: But what I
5: Oh, my goodness. Brad, you like so much dog crap, and here you no, are no, no. trash-talking no, no. on my candies of choice. I don't like you a lot of dog crap. I
3: try a lot of dog crap.
1: <laughs> wait, 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 do, you, do you see any difference in, like, the small tootsie rolls no, or, like, the not big, in the least. like, the, in fact, ones? I,
3: Except for I think the big ones are worse because yeah. there's just more of it to just slop, slop around in your mouth. Disgusting. Gross.
1: Jacob, what about you? Do you like the big, like, square ones or, like, the small...
5: No, the square ones are usually, like, terrible in half and eat a smaller piece anyway. I, for me, it's, it's just... It's a pleasant chocolate taste. It does not go down immediately, so You can, like, you have it in your mouth for five to ten minutes and enjoy it and, like, let it... And, and savor having, you know, something for your mouth to do. It's a very nice, pleasant experience. It does not involve... Chowing down and having a snack gone in 30 seconds. A 20 roll lasts. It, it, it does, lasts, it does it. Brad. The only
3: reason It lasts because yeah. it's made out of tar or something. That's the only reason it lasts. If you want a nice, pleasant chocolate experience where it sits and melts in your mouth for a while, just pop in a lint ball into your mouth and just let it melt and it's delicious and it's a higher quality chocolate. It's better.
5: Those are gone. <laughs> they're true. gone so fast.
3: That is true. They are very They're so expensive. Um, but anyway, so anyway, I don't like regular Tootsie Rolls. But what I do enjoy are the fruit-flavored Tootsie Rolls. They're delicious. Um, and uh, there's a whole, like, series of, of what they're called fruities. And I just recently discovered uh, that there is a, a watermelon-flavored fruity. I don't know if it's new or not, but I just learned about it. And so my girlfriend and I got a whole bag of them because we love uh, the artificial flavor of candy watermelon. Uh, and they are awesome they're um it it essentially tastes like you know a a more firm version of the watermelon laffy taffy um and yeah we just can't get enough of them so i I found those on uh amazon uh, in a big old bag so if you like watermelon flavored things and you like fruit flavored tootsie rolls the best tootsie rolls the only tootsie rolls then you should pick them up
1: (laughs) brad have you tried the
3: uh i have yeah those have been around for a little while and i like those those are very good
1: See, I was so disappointed. I love pumpkin. I love pumpkin pie. And we got those like two weeks ago. I forgot to talk about it here. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know what it is about it. It's like
3: just too it, strong it, of it a flavor. Have, it does um, have a more yeah. of a pumpkin spice flavor than you would expect from a candy like that. Because usually when you get like a pumpkin spice uh, flavored chocolate or candy, it's not very strong. But I do remember the Kit Kat having a stronger pumpkin spice flavor to it. Um. Uh, I also tried uh, the, a new uh, well, not I mean new ish. I've had it for a little while. I just now got around to trying it. It's been sitting in my our freezer in the garage. Um, but it's uh, brown sugar, cinnamon, pop tart, good humor bars. It's the, you know the good humor bars are those ice cream bars um on the popsicle stick that have like the crumblies on the outside of them. the The standard ones are like the the chocolate eclair and the strawberry shortcake ones. And they've had other other flavors since then, like Reese's um, and Oreo. And uh, there's a Pop-Tart's brown sugar cinnamon flavor uh, one, so I wanted to try that. Um, and it's it's just okay. Uh, it, the brown sugar cinnamon flavor isn't as strong or as good as it is in the actual Pop-Tart. I was hoping that it would be a little bit more um, savory, I, I guess, like mix, mixed with the ice cream. But the, the strength of the cinnamon flavor just, just isn't there. So, um I, no, I, like, I, I don't like, like the the spicy cinnamon flavor. I like the I like the cinnamon like cinnamon toast uh, crunch kind of flavor. Well, cinnamon pop tarts. I disagree are the best uh, wholeheartedly. My <laughs> what is the best, best pop choice? Would be the s'mores pop tarts.
5: Mm. Brad's correct here. This is where <laughs> you can find common ground on snacks. Brad, the only pop Perfect. tart I'll eat is the s'mores pop tart.
1: Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at Slash You can find this podcast in iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at dot And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you on Monday.
5: Peter. Peter. Peter, yes. this is very important. Uh, I've opened up the gargantuan book of insult, Defense, interfunnery, sharper torts for posts, cost, equips, play put downs by Louis A. Safey in the page 82 features. Page 82 features. <clears throat> is this about feature films?
2: Or is it about physical features?
5: It is about physical features. In fact, uh, oh, I had so, to turn so, to... So,
1: s- someone bring in the HR department. Uh, the first
5: page was so upsetting, I had to choose a different page. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first page? I, I don't want to talk about it. Peter Soretta. <laughs> Peter Soretta. He's a store detective. He's so cross-eyed, nobody knows whom he's watching. Hmm. Okay, Peter. It's funny.
1: <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I'm laughing.
5: <sighs> well, HT. She's so nearsighted. She once lost a bat. Uh, what the hell? <laughs> How are these features? Uh, uh, oh, H. T. She's so nearsighted. She once lost a bass, a bass fiddle, in a one-room apartment.
2: Wow, that's impressive, and also very much something I would do because I am nearsighted.
5: Uh, Chris, he was turned down for an operator's license on account of nearsightedness. He had his wife along. Hmm.
4: Let's move on. <laughs>
5: We're all over it this week, Jacob. <laughs> Brad, he's as nearsighted as a mole. I, yep.
2: <laughs> Wait, so his future is all just people who are
5: hard these of are about, seeing? Yeah, these are all about eyesight yeah. for some reason. Ben Pearson, he sleeps quite comfortably. He has such big pillows under his eyes. <laughs> That's true. Uh,. Oh, the, oh! We just left the eye section. You guys yes, want some more? Please. Yes, please. Yes, no. yes, please. No, We, <laughs> no,
1: we can. Uh, 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 no, Pe- let's keep
5: it going. Uh, Peter, he has died by his own hand, but died is spelled with a y. <laughs> I love the kind of jokes where
3: you have Not to good. tell the spelling.
5: <laughs> Wait, I don't. I don't understand. You have died oh, no. by your own hand, Peter. Yeah. So I died by old. Yeah, yeah. you're old. Yeah. You're getting old. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Oh, well, HT, they call her Kitty because she has died nine times. Died, spelled with wow. a Y.
2: <laughs> oh, wow.
5: Is this a section of died jokes? Chris. <laughs> I hope so. Chris, he's a cross between a brunette and a drugstore. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Brad, some men are blonde on their mother's side, some on their father's side, but he's mm, blonde on the peroxide. That's true. <laughs> and Ben... Uh, he's an established bleach wow. head.
3: <laughs> Old bleach head Ben. <laughs> That's what they call
5: me. <laughs> Seriously, like, it I want to point out, what Louis A. Safien does not do in his writing is he'll have each chapter, and each chapter will be divided into sections, but not divided. Like, there's jokes about nearsightedness, and jokes about... Blonde hair dye and jokes about weight, but this, like segue into one another. There's no actual clean transition. So you gotta hunt down the section you I think want. You
2: gotta write a letter to Louis A. Safian and oh, tell I, him. I think we
5: have many it. letters hey, to Jesus. write his <laughs> grave. I have aggressively, aggressively Googled Louis A. Safian to figure out if he's alive. I don't think he is. No, find he's his estate. Dead. Find his estate to find where can find out more about him. He is a cipher. He is a mystery. And if you're listening to this and you know anything about Louis A. Safian, any lead you can give me. I am genuinely, honest to God, trying to track down new, information about new this podcast. Man. Where Help in me? the Maybe world is Louis be a, a. Pen, a. Right,
3: <laughs>
1: but it has to be a pen name. Like that's not his actual name.
5: I don't know. I don't know. I, my, my research tells me that there was a Louis a. Safian who produced off Broadway shows in the 1920s. I think it may be the same man. And I'm trying to figure out more. That's all. That's I need to figure it out. This is my new mission.
1: Okay. Uh if if you have any information on the whereabouts of Luce Sapien, write into one eight hundred unsolved. One 1-800 eight <laughs> hundred whatever it is. <laughs> no, write into Peter at slash dot com and uh because we'd love to get some more information about this uh great, great man.
5: A legend in his own time and now a legend in ours.